beloved congregation, in Luke 15, we have three successive parables by which Jesus ultimately taught one truth. And why did he tell these parables? Well, the Pharisees, in utter disdain for him, said, this man receiveth sinners. In the original it says, this one receiveth sinners. And they ridiculed him, they mocked with him, because it was obvious that sinners were flocking to him, and that he ministered to them. And then he responds by telling the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then finally the parable of the lost or prodigal son. But ultimately, his objective was to focus on God, to communicate that the reason he so readily received sinners is because that's what his father does. And what's remarkable, that at the end of each story, we read about great joy. After the parable of the lost sheep, we read, there is joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. Then after the parable of the lost coin, it says there is joy among the angels in heaven over a sinner that repents. So now we know why there is joy, because the angels were rejoicing. But in the third story, the story of the prodigal son, we know that when that prodigal son returns in the way of repentance. His father not only restores him fully, but there is a great feast, a feast of extraordinary joy. And so now we know why the angels are rejoicing in heaven when a sinner repents, because God himself rejoices when a sinner repents and turns unto him. There is nothing that brings more delight to God as when sinners seek Him. And tonight we're going to focus on a remarkable Old Testament statement about the very character of God, which sets before us in such an extraordinary way the very character of God. And so let's turn to the 11th verse of Ezekiel 33, and let's read God's Word in our text. Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? And so in this passage, Jehovah declares his pleasure. He declares to us what delights him, because he says, I have no pleasure, no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they turn unto me and live. So we have a wondrous reality, a wondrous reality that God, the infinitely holy triune God, has no pleasure in the death and the perdition of sinners. That's a wondrous reality. Secondly, we have an absolute certainty 
Because lest there be any doubt about that reality, God, as we will see, swears by his own name when he says, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So in absolute certainty. And thirdly, we have an amazing plea. When God, as it were, stoops down and pleads with sinners and says, turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? So Jehovah's pleasure, God's pleasure, that which delights him. First of all, it is a wondrous reality. Secondly, it is an absolute certainty. And thirdly, it ends with an amazing plea. How faithful God was to the people of Israel who were living in exile in Babylon. God's long-suffering with them had been extraordinary. But finally, when they rejected His Word, finally God used the ultimate remedy to bring His people back to Himself and allow them to go into exile for 70 years. But remarkably, congregation, God did not forget His people in Babylon. And even in Babylon, he raised up one of the exiles by the name of Ezekiel to be his messenger to his people in exile. And in the opening verses of the chapter, which we read, we saw how the Lord reminded Ezekiel of his calling, a chapter that should be read by every minister of the gospel. And boys and girls, I'm sure that you were able to understand the analogy, the story that, Christ, that God used to make his point clear to Ezekiel. He used the story, the illustration of a watchman. Now, we cannot relate to that today because we don't have walls around our cities. But in Bible times, every city had a wall to protect them from the enemies. And there were men appointed to be watchmen. Their job was to be on the wall and to be always on the lookout if there would be an approaching enemy. And then in this analogy, God says to Ezekiel, if the watchman sees the danger coming and he sounds the alarm and the people in the city disregard the warning, then he will be free from all guilt and responsibility the responsibility will be entirely theirs for having rejected the warning. However, if the watchman sees the danger coming and he fails to blow the trumpet, he fails to warn of the impending danger, those that are in the city will still die because of their wickedness. But the blood of those people will be required from his hand because he saw the danger, and he did not blow the trumpet. And then God says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, I have raised you up to be my watchman. I've raised you up to speak on my behalf. I have raised you up to speak to my people and to warn them in my name. And because you are my spokesman, I have a message. I have a message that I want you to proclaim to them Again, 
Verse 10, therefore, O thou son of man, speak unto the house of Israel. Thus you speak, saying, if our transgressions and our sins be upon us, and we pine away in them, how should we then live? See, what was going on at this particular point, congregation, is that even though they were groaning in their exile, they were not yet repenting. They had not yet come to the point where they realized and acknowledged that they deserved to be there. As a matter of fact, in a very pious way, they were blaming God for their plight. And what's remarkable about verse 10 is that God is saying to Ezekiel, I know what they are saying. I know what they are thinking. I know that they are actually blaming me for their plight in a very pious way. In a very pious way, they say, well, since God's judgment is upon us anyway, then how should we then live? And so really they were calling to question God's sincerity, who already at several occasions had communicated to them that even though he was chastising them, that if they would return to him, he would be gracious to them. And then that makes our text so amazing, so amazing, that to a people who had, not yearned, who had not yet learned their lesson, to a people who in a very pious way were blaming God for their plight, as there are still today, who in a very pious way blame God for their spiritual condition, for their unconverted state, in a very pious way, hide behind the reality of who they really are. And so God says, I know what they're thinking about me, but I have a message for these people. Say unto them, say even unto them, say to those people who are questioning my sincerity, say to those people who ultimately are gainsayers, right? The Bible talks about all the day have I stretched forth my hands into a, a gainsaying people. What does that mean, gainsaying? Gainsaying means to talk back. That's what they were doing in a very pious way. They were gainsaying. They were talking back to the Lord. Say to them, say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now, this is the third time in the book of Ezekiel that God makes a similar statement. We read in verse 18, verse 23, where God asks a question. He says, Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? Saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live. So he poses it as a question. Then in verse 32, he says, For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. And now for the third time here in Ezekiel 33. God repeats that truth, but even more strongly, as we will see in a moment. Because this time, as a way 
if I may say reverently, he goes out on a limb and he swears by his own name, as we will see in a moment. How amazing that God has such a message for these people. And he mentions no words. He calls them wicked. What does that mean, wicked? Well, the Hebrew word is the word that we today would translate as criminal. A congregation, what's a criminal? A criminal is a lawbreaker. When we break the law, our government, our judicial system views us as a criminal. So the Bible is saying that by nature we are wicked. We are lawbreakers. And so it was with the people of Israel. In spite of all of their privileges, their, their, the privileges that God had bestowed upon them, they proved themselves to be a wicked people. And what a sobering truth that is. That's why I've said here a number of times already that the biblical gospel is offensive to the natural man because the biblical gospel is truthful about us. The biblical gospel declares to us how God views us. And the biblical gospel declares that in God's sight we are wicked. We are born and conceived in sin and by nature we are wicked. By nature we are lawbreakers. By nature we have an utter disregard for God. We have an utter disregard for His Word. But the worst wickedness, the worst wickedness that these people of Israel were guilty of, something the Gentiles were not guilty of, was the sin of unbelief. A congregation, unbelief is ultimately the sin of all sins. Unbelief is the most extraordinary manifestation of human wickedness. And they were guilty of this. They were disregarding God's word. They were disregarding what he had revealed of himself. And why is unbelief so wicked? As you know, unbelief treats God as a liar. That's what unbelief is. That's why unbelief is man's ultimate sin. It was unbelief that made Adam and Eve believe Satan's lie. It is is unbelief. Unbelief, which is ultimately the fountain of all other sins. It's ultimately unbelief, which is the damning soul, the damning sin of sinner. It's that sin that offends God more than any other sin. And it's that sin that manifests itself especially among those who live with the Word of God and who yet, in spite of it, continue on a pathway of sin. To be surrounded by that Word, to be instructed from that Word, to have that Word proclaimed to us and invite us to seek the Lord. That Word which promises to us that God will be gracious to sinners and then to continue in sin. 
and to treat God as a liar, to ignore him, to ignore his word. That's what these people had been guilty of for a long time. They were still guilty of it, even in Babylon. And now the astonishing thing. We would have expected that God would have said to Ezekiel, his watchman, Ezekiel, as my watchman, you have to tell these people, I'm finished with them. I'm done with them. I have favored them in so many ways. And they continue to turn their backs upon me. They continue to accuse me of being a liar, accusing me of insincerity. I'm done with them. They must die. But instead, amazingly, he says, go tell them, go tell these people, go tell them that I have no pleasure in their death. Congregation, that should fill us with holy astonishment. If ever we see the character of God, we see it on display right here, because that's ultimately what God is doing here. He is going out of his way even to these people. He, as it were, opens his heart and he says, Ezekiel, as my messenger, as my messenger, tell these people once again, I have no pleasure in their death, no pleasure in their destruction. Congregation, that's the story of your and my life. Why is it that you have come to this moment? Why is it, boys and girls, that other boys and girls are sick and who are dying? Why is it that God has kept you alive until this day? Why are you still here? Why are you still here in the house of God? Why is it that every day God's Word is still taught to you? Why? Here's the answer. Because God has no pleasure in your death. God has no pleasure in your damnation. And that's why He has kept you alive. That's why He has preserved your life until this very moment, so that once again you would hear from His own mouth that He has no pleasure in your death. That He is the God who in Christ delights in mercy, that He is the God of abundant mercy. And so we ourselves, we, all of us, we are the living confirmation of this truth. But there is something that is even greater than this, something that should remove all doubt, that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And that congregation is the death of His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why He sent His Son into the world. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ was destined for the cross of Calvary, so that God could carry out His good pleasure. And so He subjected His only begotten Son to what every wicked sinner deserves, death and damnation. And he subjected his own son to it, 
Amazingly, it says in Isaiah 53, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And so we could say in light of our text, the reason God has no pleasure in the death of sinners is because of his good pleasure. No pleasure because of his good pleasure. And what is God's good pleasure? God's good pleasure unveiled to us in his word is that he is a God who is in the business of saving wicked men and women. A God whose delight it is to save fallen sons and daughters of Adam. But the only way that God could bestow that blessing upon the wicked is by treating his own son as if he were the wicked one. And even though he was sinless, yet God viewed him as the most wicked man on earth, as the substitute of wicked sons and daughters of Adam. And so it pleased God to bruise him so that God could swear by his own name, as he does here, that he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And so Romans 5, verse 6, it says, In due time, in the fullness of time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's what makes the amazing grace of God so utterly amazing. That he gave his son as a sacrifice for men and women who by nature have no desire after the knowledge of his ways. Men and women who are born as enemies of himself. Men and women who by nature are inclined to be criminals, lawbreakers. By nature live in utter disregard for him. For such, he gave his only begotten son. It pleased him to bruise his son. It pleased him to submit him to the accursed death of the cross. So that on the basis of that sacrifice, God can come to us again and again and say, because of my son, because of what he has accomplished, I can declare to you, sinner, that I have no pleasure in your death. Oh, God opens up his heart here. You know what, 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 what happened at Calvary's cross ultimately, and you'll hear me say this over and over again, this is so, so remarkable, and we see this unfolded for us in this text. So in his son, congregation, listen carefully, in his son, God gave himself. Why? So that he can be himself. God gave himself so that he can be himself. He gave his son as a sacrifice for sin so that on the basis of that sacrifice, God can freely open up his heart to the sons and daughters of men and God can stand before us today and say, because it pleased me to bruise him, therefore I can declare to you, sinner, that I have no pleasure in your death but that you would turn unto me and live. And so the cross 
the cross of Calvary, is the ultimate affirmation of this text. Because of that cross, because of the death of God's only begotten Son, God can reveal Himself in the gospel as a God who delights in mercy, as a God of plenteous mercy, as a God who is ready to forgive, even as we heard this morning, even the chief of sinners. That's why it is so encouraging when someone is awakened to the fact who they really are in God's sight. When it becomes real, when it becomes painfully real to us that I am wicked indeed. That's what the grace of God does. The grace of God makes us honest before God. The grace of God makes us say amen to the Bible's assessment as to who we really are. And that's why the gospel is not preached in vain. That's why throughout the history of this world, that gospel which is so offensive to the natural man because it declares us who we really are in the sight of God. But that gospel has rendered fruitful because when the Spirit of God works savingly in us. He brings us to that awareness that we are wicked in the sight of God. And how amazing it then becomes to hear from the gospel that God gave His Son not to save good people, nice people, but that He gave His Son to save wicked sinners. No pleasure in the death of sinners. But more than that, but, that's a very strong word here, but the very opposite, that the wicked turn from his way and live. Now, obviously, what's implied there is that God is clearly saying that when sinners turn to him, they will never do so in vain. God is saying when sinners, when the wicked turn to him and flee to him, in response to his own word, they will live. Because that's God's delight, you see. So this morning, we talked about that important relationship between turning to God and turning from your sin. We see that here in this text. So before God declares that if they turn to him and live, he first reveals his character to encourage sinners to turn to him. And so God is saying, sinner, I have no pleasure in your death. Therefore, turn from your wicked way, and I promise you that you shall live indeed. And then when we place this in the context of the entire Bible, then ultimately what that means God urges us to turn to His way. And what is His way? His way is the way that is unveiled to us in the person and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's God's way. That's why Jesus said of Himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
And that is the way that God has opened. That is the way which God has ordained. And I think it's entirely appropriate to say it's ultimately Christ who's speaking in this text. Christ. Because congregation, whenever God speaks to man in the Old Testament as well, it is always in the person of His Son. It is in Christ that God draws near to us. It is in Christ that God opens His heart to us. It is in Christ that God stretches forth His hands to a disobedient and gainsaying people. It is in Christ that He declares that He has no pleasure in our death. And so when Christ uttered these words, He knew what that meant for Him. He knew that ultimately, in the fullness of time, he would have to come and he would have to, have to give his life as a ransom for many in order to be the way, the truth, and the life. And the marvelous message of the gospel is congregation that no sinner will ever turn to that way in vain. No sinner who responds to God's Word and who turns from his wicked way to that way which God has ordained in his only begotten Son, no sinner will ever be disappointed because this is who God is. That's the point God is making here. That's what he's saying to these people of Israel who were piously blaming him. And he stoops down to them and he's saying to them again, Oh, my people, oh, my people, let me remind you of who I am. Yes, I am chastising you. But if you turn to me, you will live and you will not perish. But as I said before, and that brings us to our second point. I've been weaving it through already, but let me just really focus on this now. God introduces that amazing statement, that amazing revelation of his heart by these words, as I live. That's an oath, congregation, an oath. That should surprise us. Because why do we use oaths in our society? Why do we have to swear an oath when we have to appear in a courtroom? Why do we have to swear an oath when we take on a public office. Why? It's because by nature we are liars. Because by nature our word is not trustworthy. So by means of an oath, even our society seeks to bind us to our word. Because what is an oath? When we swear an oath, we are calling God as a witness that what I'm saying is true, and I'm actually saying that if I'm lying, if what I'm saying is not truthful, may God judge me for not being truthful. And our society takes an oath very seriously. That's why the penalties for perjury, in other words, perjury means, boys and girls, when you swear an oath and you say this is really true, and it turns out that you were lying, there are serious penalties for perjury. And so, this, the, the idea of oath-swearing has everything to do with our sinnership. And now God avails Himself here of an oath. 
And why? Because of our wicked unbelief. Because of our wicked unbelief. Because of the fact that actually we treat God as a liar by nature. It is as if God is saying to these people very well, if you accuse me of insincerity, if you accuse me of not being truthful, let me swear an oath. Let me swear by my own name, as I live, saith the Lord God. Congregation, what makes it very special that in the Old Testament, this phrase, as I live, occurs 20 times. 19 times God uses it to pronounce judgment. Judgment upon people who did not believe him. And so he warns the ungodly, as I live, as surely as I am God, so surely will I judge you for your sins. But here's the exception. And he uses that same oath to declare his willingness and his readiness to be gracious even to the vilest sinner. And this is if God is saying to the people of Israel, as surely as I will bring judgment upon the wicked, so surely I will pardon the sinner who repents. You know what God is actually saying here? He's saying, if this is not true, that I have no pleasure in the death of sinners, but that they shall live if they turn to me. If that's not true, then I cease to be God. That's what he is saying. Then I cease to be God. Hebrews 6 verse 13 refers to this old swearing too. It says, for when God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. That's what God is doing. And so God literally, congregation, he is putting his existence on the line. He is putting his reputation on the line. He's saying, if this is not true, then I am not God. Then I cease to be God. But as surely as I am God, as surely as I am the God who revealed himself to Moses in, in that amazing moment in Exodus 34, as surely as my name is Jehovah, as surely as I am merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, so sure it is that I have no pleasure in your death as I live. And now again we make the connection to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because again, the cross of Calvary is the ultimate affirmation of that oath. And the Lord Jesus Christ is now the Savior who lives, who not only died to save the wicked, to save the ungodly, but who is now alive. And it is Christ who says to us in the gospel, as surely as I live, as surely as I am the living Savior and Redeemer of sinners, so sure it is that I have no pleasure in your death, but that you would turn unto me and live. The congregation, that's why 
The word of God is proclaimed Lord's Day after Lord's Day. Every Lord's Day, every time the word of God is preached, God, as it were, is reaffirming that oath. God is reaffirming this glorious reality that he has no pleasure in the death of sinners, but that we would turn unto him and live. Oh, in the gospel, God comes so very, very near to us. To put it reverently, we are called to bring God's word in such a way also tonight that we can hear the heartbeat of God. That's what we hear in this text. We hear the heartbeat of God. A heart that beats with infinite mercy and with infinite love. A God who can open up his heart to sinners in the preaching of the gospel. A God who can do so freely. Precisely. Because in his son, he gave himself as a sacrifice for sin. He gave himself so that he can be himself. So every service, every time the Word of God is proclaimed to us, also to you boys and girls, every single time God is reassuring us, I will never be guilty of perjury. I will never act contrary to my character. Every proclamation of the Word is an affirmation of this oath. And you would say at this point, is there now anything else Anything more to be said? And then comes the final statement, that amazing plea. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? May I put it this way, congregation? And I say it with the utmost reverence. It is as if the Almighty drops to his knees. And with the utmost earnestly of his divine being, with the utmost sincerity of his divine heart, he pleads with sinners. And the fact that he repeats it means how very much he means it. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. And again, that's what God has been doing your whole life. Boys and girls, that's what God has been doing your whole life, in your life too. He comes to you with his word over and over again. At home, in school, and here, God repeats himself over and over again because he so desires that you would hear what he has to say. And listen to the holy amazement expressed here by God. Why, why will you die? Sinner, why do you ignore me? Why do you turn a deaf ear to me? Why are you bent on going to hell? Why are you determined to perish? When I am proffering peace and pardon to you, when I am declaring to you how willing I am to save you, when I proclaim to you that I have no pleasure in your death, that if you come to me, that I will in no wise cast you out. Why? Why do you ignore me? Why are you so determined to perish? 
Of course, that's implied here. That's implied here. And so this gracious God who stoops so low to plead with sinners clearly teaches us what the consequences are when we do not turn from our evil ways, when we continue on the pathway of sin. Then a loving God is warning sinners for judgment to come. That judgment will be inevitable. He's saying, sinner, if you ignore me, if you ignore my word, and if you will not turn from your evil ways, you are going to perish. That's why Spurgeon has a sermon with a famous title that applies to this passage. The title is, Turn or Burn. Turn or Burn. That's what God is saying. But the reason why he stoops so low and the reason why he pleads with sinners and warns them of the consequences if they will not turn is because he has no pleasure in your death. And true, when sinners perish, God's justice will be glorified. But let there be no mistake, let there be no mistake about the character of God. God is a righteous God who loves righteousness. God is a God who will judge the ungodly. But His character is, and that's the point here, is that His character is such that He has no pleasure the death of sinners. And notice the language that God uses. Notice what God does not say. God does not say, you must wait until I enable you to turn. He does not say, sinner, there's nothing you can do. Is it not true that ultimately... We need the grace of God to do what God demands of us. Of course it is. But God never addresses us this way. God does not say, wait till I turn you. Wait till I enable you. No, he says, turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. And who would dare to accuse God of being free will? God always addresses us in terms of our responsibility. He always treats us as responsible creatures. So he appeals. He appeals here to our will. And yes, it is true. Thanks be to God that God also gives what he requires. And that he does make sinners willing in the day of his power. All of that's true. But the emphasis tonight is on that which God demands of us. And you see, that should bring us to our knees. That should make us realize that as far as God is concerned, our responsibility is inescapable. And if you go lost, my friend, if you go lost... You will go lost because you did not turn. It's not because you were not chosen. It's not because God didn't work in you. You will be damned for your unbelief. You will be damned for the rejection of His Word. And that reality should drive us to our knees, should drive us into the arms of a gracious God. 
to realize that God is pressing His Word upon us and that His Word and its implications are inescapable. Oh, turn ye, turn ye. It's so very, very personal, so very personally addressed to us. Sinner, why will you die? Why will you perish? I gave my son as a ransom for sinners. My son died in the place of sinners. And because of him, I can offer you life. Because of him, I can offer you full redemption. Because of him, I can offer you the full pardon of your sins. In him, sinner, I have provided everything you need to be reconciled with him. Why? Why will you die? Why will you turn away from my word? Oh, these words are remarkable indeed. And so, congregation... Where are you at today? Boys and girls, where are you at? What has your response been to the Word of God? Is there there someone here who is still turning a deaf ear to what God has to say to us in the Gospel? And so what God has allowed us to do, He has allowed us to look into his heart. That's what God does in this text. He opens his heart. And he said, sinner, this is who I am. This is my pleasure. I have no pleasure in your death that you would turn unto me and live. And so from God's side, there are no obstacles. He has never turned his back towards us. We are by nature, we by nature turn our back towards him. That's why Jesus said these sharp words to the Pharisees in John 5 verse 40. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. You will not come to me that you might have life. There we have this damning indictment. Not only the Pharisees, but ultimately of every unrepentant sinner. But you're still alive. You're still here. Why? Because he has no pleasure in your death. And so may this bring you to your knees. Take, take this God at his word. He loves to be reminded of his word. Bow your knees and say, Lord, I heard today that thou hast no pleasure in my death, that I would turn unto thee and live, and I don't know how. But I realize that unless I turn to thee, unless I come to thee, I will perish, I will perish forever. Oh, God is so honored when we come to him with his own word. He is so honored when we remind him of his own word that delights him supremely. It is my earnest desire that you may experience that God really means what he says. And dear believer, how this ought to humble you greatly.
You are the living proof of God's good pleasure. You are what you are today because of His good pleasure. That should humble you greatly. But it should also give you a burden for those who are still on their way to hell, who will surely die, who will surely perish apart from Christ. And our task is to go into the world and to proclaim this God to perishing sinners, to tell them that for Christ's sake, God, the God against whom we have sinned, has no pleasure in our death, and who promises the wicked that if they turn, they shall live. So well, let me conclude by another remarkable passage that's connected to this. So open your Bibles, please, to Isaiah 55, verse 7, which is the application to everything that I have said this evening. Isaiah 55, verse 7. Again, these amazing words from the very lips of God. Verse 7, let the wicked, the same word, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Amen. Let's pray. O oh, great and eternal triune God, how great Thou art, and how inadequate are our human words to proclaim what Thou hast revealed to us of Thyself in Thy Word, to think that in this text Thou hast drawn so near to us, that in this text thou hast allowed us to hear thy heartbeat. Thou hast opened thy heart to us and declared to sinners that thou hast no pleasure in their death, but that they would turn unto thee and live. And Lord, we pray that this word may not have been proclaimed in vain. Lest, if thou hast come so near to us in thy word, we would yet perish, that we would continue in unbelief to reject thy word. Oh, what a judgment awaits those to whom thy word has been proclaimed. Oh, it shall be more tolerable for Solomon and Gomorrah and for Tyre and Sidon. Oh, may that not be true for us. And so, Lord, while thou art proffering peace and pardon, oh, that we would hear thy voice today. Lest if we our hearts should harden, we should perish in the way. Go with us now to our homes. Give us traveling mercies. Bless our reflection upon thy word. Go with us in this coming week. Bless the labor of our hands. Bless our children in school. Keep us safely in all of our travels. And hear us for Christ's sake alone. Amen.